You're listening to. And welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And we are here today to talk about our January 2022 book club pick, She Who Became the Sun by Shelley Parker Chan. But before we get started, uh, happy belated Lunar New Year, Marvin. Right. It is the new year. Um, happy year of the tiger for everybody. Um Riri, I'm not sure if you celebrated, but I did celebrate with my family. I got some red envelopes because I'm still unmarried, which so I technically qualified. Um, it's been an interesting year so far. Um, Netflix raised their <laughs> Netflix raised their rates. Um, the New York Times bought Wordle. So I don't know if this year is off to the best start, but um, I think everybody is of the general consensus of let's just hope that this year is not like objectively terrible <laughs> like let's let's just hope that it's a little bit better than the year before but i have a good feeling yeah um yeah ear of the tiger sounds like the year <laughs> of the koreans because you know oh that's true yeah we're we're the land of the tigers so well, uh, let me offer you some new year's greetings and a happy new year i uh, wish you good fortune good health good wealth and um same same times. to you as well same to all of our <laughs> listeners yeah whether you celebrate it or not actually okay so i don't celebrate it but a lot of other koreans do a lot of korean americans do so i've been seeing like pictures of them eating like rice cake soup and all of like the traditional stuff that they do with their family and i messaged my parents saying like oh happy Seollal," because you know i'm just trying to be a filial daughter even <laughs> though we're not like celebrating it and my dad responded saying Oh, thanks, but I don't really care about the lunar calendar, but happy new year, I guess. Like, stay <laughs> oh, no. well and healthy. Like, have fun, I guess. And I was like, wow, um, that sums up my entire relationship with Korean holidays. That is, that is sad and funny at the same time. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't think it's something to be sorry about. I just thought it was very funny because, I don't know, like... People make it out to be such like a big deal in other Asian cultures. And I kind of feel left out in a way because it's like, it's like, I, I kind of wish I had that experience, but I don't. The closest I've had to it was um, going to Korean school and then they have like all of the like traditional activities, but that's at school. So that's not with your family. <laughs> it is interesting how the Lunar New Year has become this like pan Asian American holiday that even like the mainstream commercial stores are now celebrating. And yeah, it's wild. It's a little wild, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, let me just say like the number of ads that I got from beauty product companies were like, this is our lunar new year, like package edition of like, of like uh, skincare stuff. And it's like, wow, um, how performative of you to celebrate Asians just on this one <laughs> holiday. <laughs> we got the Lunar New Year and we got the month of May, I guess. I, I guess those are the only two times Asians <laughs> matter, apparently. Yeah. 
Uh, before we get started, I also wanted to quickly apologize to everybody who tried to buy a Books and Boba tote bag over the last month. Um, we use a platform called Bonfire that creates order windows um, called campaigns. And sometimes if not enough people order um, our merchandise, the entire purchase order doesn't go through. And that's what happened to our tote bag orders of the last month. I received an email saying that all the orders have been canceled due to not hitting the order threshold. So if you tried to buy a tote bag last month and received that email, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, I have changed the tote bag settings to on demand, which means your order for a tote bag will go through the moment you submit the order. Uh, this means on our end, we're not receiving the benefits of the economies of scale, but I'd much rather you have your tote bag to go represent our book club than um, penny pinch on not making an extra like 20 cents on the bag. So if you did get your order canceled, you should be able to get your order through um, if you go to our Books and Boba bonfire store now. The apparel orders went through fine. So if you ordered a Books and Boba t-shirt or sweatshirt, uh, you should be getting those soon. But uh, so yeah, hopefully now those of you who want a Books and Boba tote bag will be able to get one. Uh, I like to rock mine when I go to buy Boba, just, you know, just to be smug about it. I use my tote bag as my main purse because I'm always just carrying a shit ton of stuff. So <laughs> it surprisingly fits a lot of things. So yeah. I've been using that as my uh, main uh, grocery bag and <laughs> my main uh, takeaway bag. Pretty much anything you can stuff in it, I have been using it. Yeah. And your support has helped us um, pay for about, I want to say, half a year of hosting for this show. So thank you for that support as well. Um, and with that said, um, Rira, can you um, start us off with the book jacket summary for She Who Became the Sun? All right. In 1345, China lies under harsh Mongol rule. For the starving peasants of the Central Plains, greatness is something found only in stories. But when Zhu family's eighth-born son, Zhu Chongba, is given a fate of greatness, everyone is mystified as to how it will come to pass. The fate of nothingness received by the family's clever and capable second daughter, on the other hand, is only as expected. When a bandit attack orphans the two children, though it is Zhu Chongba who succumbs to despair and dies. Desperate to escape her own fated death, the girl uses her brother's identity to enter a monastery as a young male novice. There, propelled by her burning desire to survive, Zhu learns she is capable of doing whatever it takes, no matter how callous, to stay hidden from her fate. After her sanctuary is destroyed for supporting the rebellion against Mongol rule, Zhu takes the chance to claim another future altogether. Her brother's abandoned greatness. And that is a very good place to start our discussion because that is part one of the book. Yeah. Um, I guess right off the bat, what are your general impressions after finishing the book? Um, so we've read a couple of Chinese-inspired military fantasies. Um, Marvin has read The Poppy War. We've read The Grace of Kings for this podcast, as well as Empress of Salt and Fortune. So we kind of know how these types of stories go. But it was very different this time around in terms <laughs> of themes. And um, I guess I expected the fantasy element to be bigger, but it was actually very minor in terms of like the narrative yeah the fantasy in this novel was pretty low fantasy it's not like your swords and sorcery but i did like how the book was recognizable as like an asian uh specifically chinese inspired fantasy you know a chinese 
fantasy epic um, spans a couple different spectrums. You have your books like Jade City and The Poppy War, where you know you're really following more characters and there's a lot more martial arts action. And then you have your more sweeping military epics like uh, The Grace of Kings and Romance of the Three Kingdoms, where it's much more focused on big battles and politicking. What I love about Chinese epics set in these time periods is these are the times where you find like ambitious people who use the opportunity of the chaos of a waiting empire to write their own destinies. Because during times of chaos, that's when heroes emerge. And that's when you have ordinary people with ambition um, able to find ways to gain glory through through war and through battle. Yeah, in terms of like comparing it to Grace of Kings, I mean, they're both very different books, but because, you know, we're talking about military fantasy inspired by Chinese dynasties, uh, She Who Became the Sun is more character focused. So the cast is much smaller, <laughs> and I think the plot is much more uh, like digestible in terms of just like sitting through and knowing what's going on. Whereas with Grace of Kings, there are so many characters, so many factions, so much time passes. <laughs> Although this book does a lot of time skips as well. Um, but I really liked the um, exploration of gender identity, uh, queerness, gender expression. Um, we'll get more into that later, but it's a reimagining of the Ming dynasty or the rise of the Ming dynasty and the fall of the Yuan dynasty. So obviously there's going to be a lot of violence because as with a lot of uh, stories that take place at the end of a dynasty, there's a lot of rebellions and there's a lot of uh, gore. So if you are... Uh, so if you haven't read the book, just go into the book with that caution. There are some gruesome deaths that are uh, depicted in the story. But uh, yeah, like I was not surprised by the ending, but apparently some people were on Goodreads. <laughs> well, it helps being familiar with the story. Um, yeah, I think know. that's what that's what it is. Like you're not. I mean, I'm not very knowledgeable about the um, the Ming Dynasty or the Yan Dynasty, but like just from the title alone, I'm like, oh, okay. Like Zhu is going to become the emperor somehow. <laughs> like I see where this is going, but apparently a lot of people were very surprised that Zhu uh, yeah. became the emperor. Yeah, I mean. I was the same way. Like, I'm not as familiar with the rise of the Ming Dynasty. I'm much more familiar with the era at, at the fall of the Han Dynasty because that's the Three Kingdoms era. But there's you know, similar themes here where it's about people claiming the right to rule and dealing with political schemes. And the main character, Zhu Tongba, or the nameless Zhu Daughter, um, she's characterized as someone of that archetype. Uh, she is a very ambitious and pragmatic person um, willing to do whatever it takes to succeed um, and is not above using underhanded tactics to um, to survive and to win, which I think in a way makes her like contemporaries with like the great strategists of like the Three Kingdoms era, um, like Cao Cao or Zhuge Liang, who are also characterized as pragmatic people who aren't afraid to use um, unconventional or underhanded tactics to win, even though it's seen as maybe cowardly or dishonorable by other people. Um, in the same way, um, Zhu Tongba often uses her experience as a woman and her insights to find ways to uh, win battles and secure her own survival. Yeah. Um, as with a lot of Asian period pieces, 
there's a lot of patriarchy and a lot of misogyny, and that is just unfortunately part of our history, and we're still uh, affected by it today. So yeah. reading a lot of the misogynistic language and just like the character's mindset of, of like internalized misogyny and sexism, I'm like, oh, patriarchy sucks. <laughs> Being a woman during this time period really, really sucks. Yeah, I mean, the setup, of course, is Zhu Zongba is actually a real life, the real life warrior monk who became the first emperor of the Ming dynasty. In the story, Shelley Parker Chan asked the question, what if Zhu Tsongba was actually his sister? And I did enjoy the fact that while this is a gritty, gruesome military war epic, it also had, in a way, the heart of a cross-dressing um, narrative because um, for most of the story, actually all of the story, um, Zhu Tsongba is trying to pass herself off as a man and that tension of being found out um, is ever present and there's a lot of dark tension in there but it's also some moments of levity too in terms of like the length she goes to to maintain her secret um, especially in the first uh, third when she was in the monastery yeah i mean with the uh cross-dressing uh aspect like i mean we see it a lot in c dramas and k dramas right like where um like the yeah like the the bathhouse scenes and like the yeah like the bathhouse scene or it's just like oh no like this prince figured out that i'm a woman and now we're following falling in love like it's it's the typical trope but i really like the fact that ju is um you know she is non-binary in this very very masculine space where she has to deny herself as a woman in order to be taken seriously. And that makes her very uncomfortable around other women. And I thought that was very interesting because she understands how much women suffer under the patriarchy. <laughs> but at the same time, she's just like, oh, I'm not one of them. Like, it's like, I am Ju Chongba. I am destined for greatness. Like, I have none of that femininity in me that makes me feel weak. And that can come across as very toxic line of thinking. It's a line um, of thinking that a lot of people who are not well-versed in feminism believe to be uh, all woke. But I think Shelley Parker Chan did a really good job exploring uh, like gender queerness in a patriarchal society because Zhu is not the only person who has this, uh, uh, who's like in this in-between space because the other character who is equally a protagonist is Ouyang and he comes in in the second part of the book. And Actually, like the first part is mostly told from Ju's point of view, but then as we go into part two, part three, uh, it splits into different POVs. And that's really interesting because uh, Ju's pronoun changes depending on the POV. So a lot of people who still consider her to be a cis man, they call uh, her he. And there are times when Ju, you know, she calls herself um, herself in, in like female pronouns but then when she is talking to other people she addresses herself in male pronouns so it's a very subtle way to play with gender that i thought uh, shelly parker chan did a really good job yeah i mean Zhu's character i believe self-identifies still as female right i i but would say non-binary because non-binary for um 
like most of the book until she gets like the mandate of heaven, I would say, because there's there's a lot of moments in the book where she's like, I'm like neither. Like I feel like an alien, but I'm not um, entirely women, not entirely male. So it's really hard to say what she identifies as, but that's not I would say like that's not the point. I think it's more of her exploring um, what her identity is and uh, how that is tied with her ambition and her fate, uh, fate, ambition, shame, greatness, nothingness. Those are all like tied together in this one major um Oh no, it's just something that a lot of the characters have on like on their shoulders the entire time. Yeah, and um, I guess before we move on, um I feel like we should note that both Rira and I identify as cisgender and hetero. So there might be some nuance to the storytelling and the allegories that we may have either missed or are not aware of. Because while we can identify with the themes of living under Confucian values and being marginalized, there are certain intersections that we probably um, have blind spots for. So um, if there's anything that we missed during our discussion um, that you think is worth bringing up, please let us know. Um, let us know on our Goodreads group or on Twitter, because I'd love to know if there's anything that we uh, may have missed. Yeah, and I did my best to uh, read reviews from uh, queer reviewers who read this book. And a lot of them said that they um, thought the depiction of uh, gender queerness and gender fluidity was pretty uh, relatable. So, uh, and also, like, Shelley Parker Chan is. Um, also queer herself. Uh, she considers herself um, under the pronouns she and they. Um, and I know that uh, when she was writing this book, she really wanted to uh, write characters that kind of reflect her own experiences and her own journey in exploring uh, sexuality and gender identity. So um, obviously that is a very big part of this book and that kind of makes the whole story fresh in my opinion because if this was just um like i guess a retelling yeah. of the yeah historical fiction of the ming dynasty like i feel like i would not be as interested <laughs> because i don't know just just the fact that it 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 is such a patri patriarchal society and then you have a woman who is um trying to pass pass as a man and to prove herself uh by wielding this male identity it creates a lot of conflict and a lot of nuance and i just feel like that would have been missing if yeah. it was just a straight up military fantasy and i did enjoy that like the the point of her existence wasn't to become one of the guys right it was to chase greatness is to i guess transcend her fate and i thought that was a really interesting way to take it because sometimes you know a lot of times with these cross-dressing stories it's it's more about the hijinks than like the ambition, right? Yeah, I mean, even with ambition, that's a little bit tied. That's tied to gender, definitely, because in the society, they think that ambition is only allowed for cis men. Uh, women should just be subservient and just obey and uh, let other people decide their fate. And they're told not to want things, even though they're human, and it's a human trait to want things yeah so yeah. it so like having jew being like i 
like you're telling me as a woman that I'm a, I'm not allowed to have a future. I'm not allowed to want greatness. Well, fuck that. I'm going to do whatever the hell I want. Yeah. I, I like that, you know, this has been pitched as a Mulan meets um, the Son of Achilles, but, you know, Mulan took on her father's armor, um, as Disney portrays it at least, to be a filial daughter and to save her father. Zhu assumes her brother's identity uh, for, I guess, less selfless reasons. She just wants to survive and um, she wants to shed her fate of nothingness by taking on her brother's fate of greatness because her brother gave up on that fate, right? He decided to die in despair, uh, whereas Zhu has this will to survive. And she believes that by assuming the fate that her brother gave up, she'll be able to um, also borrow that fate as well. I mean, fate, like we said, is a pretty big theme in this book. And we see that with Ouyang, who is the Mongol general who is not actually Mongol. He's actually, um, what was the actual It's Nanan, but basically it's he's... Nanan, which means Southerner, uh, which is, I guess, a colloquialism for just Han Chinese. So he was Chinese. Okay. Yeah. 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 And, you know, he's in a very unique position because, um, you know, he was forcibly castrated after his entire family was executed for being rebels against the um, Mongols. And he rose from being a slave to a general. So... He's kind of occupying this in-between space, uh, not just in terms of his gender identity, but also in terms of his like ethnic identity <laughs> and uh, loyalty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I felt like it was such a like a C or K drama move to make like the antagonist like a very beautiful man. You know, I mean, like with Oyang, like. He- like, if he could have easily been the sole protagonist of this book, you know, like, I could totally see it happening. But I'm really glad that um, it was a dual protagonist story because you get, like, a larger spectrum of um, of queerness because you have Oyang who, um, you know, he has been denied his masculinity and people constantly tell him, oh, you're beautiful as a woman. And he freaking hates that because he's like you know it's like i didn't choose to be a eunuch it was uh it was forced upon me and you know i'm a general and i'm cutthroat but people still consider me to be a woman or a thing not enough of a man and i have to constantly prove myself and his mindset is very like internalized misogyny because he constantly thinks that women are like annoying and just like not worthy of his time and he hates being compared to them. So, yeah, if like Oyang was like the sole p- protagonist of the story, like it could have been very limiting and kind of like a negative portrayal of a queer character who hates their identity. Whereas with Ju, I would say like her experience is more positive. There's there's less doom and gloom on her side of things. Whereas with Oyang, it's like I am destined to kill the people who killed my family, <laughs> and I hate that th- this is happening because I'm secretly in love with the person who I've been serving for all these years. I mean, let's talk about that. Um- like like we mentioned, fate and prophecy are a big part of this book. A big part of just East Asian culture 
you know, even these days we have like, I don't know if your parents go see a fortune teller, but I know plenty of parents who go see fortune tellers. And even we just went through New Year and New Year's all about luck and fate and fortune, right? And there's this idea in, especially during this time period, that fates are set, right? You you can't fight your fate. If your fate is to be a hero, your fate is to be a woman, your fate is to be nothing. Like that is something that is set in stone. And, you know, that tension that Zhu is trying to pass under someone else's fortune, that's her anxiety for like a good two thirds of this book. Yeah. And she literally sees ghosts as well. So that's kind of like a a more literal sense of her anxiety because she's always like, oh, the ghosts can see who I really am. They're constantly asking me who I am. So I need to not just pretend to be Zhu Chongba, I need to embody him and only make decisions that he would make. And of course, she breaks off from that uh, in like the last quarter of the book. Yeah, and you know, the climax being Zhu Chongba as as the character who decides to break away and make her own fate ascends to greatness, whereas Ouyang, who is equally trapped within his idea that he has to follow his fate to the end, regardless of his own um, ideas about it, also does something audacious, but he still feels like it's out of his control. And, you know, Ouyang's fate is tied to his, like, again, he's still trapped under the the power, I guess, of Confucian ideals, namely filial piety, like because his family was murdered by the Mongolian invaders by the Great Yuan, whether or not he wants to, he has to take revenge for them because it is his it is his fate that he's inherited from his ancestors who literally crowd him, right? Like he is constantly surrounded by the ghosts of his dead family members. Yeah, and uh his revenge I mean, he's been planning his revenge for years, but it's it's that moment. It's that battle where Zhu like rings the gong and and has a landslide uh, decimate like ten thousand of his men, and he's just like, "Well, I guess that's a sign for me to start uh, plotting against my it's, owners." I mean, it sets him off because because of that landslide, because of uh, because of that military defeat, he gets sent home early, and he's finally in a position to execute his plan. Also, it helps that like. Uh, Isen's dad. What was his name? I, I don't remember his name. He doesn't stay alive for very long. But uh, but he degrades Ouyang, being like, oh, like, I took pity on you. Like, you should be grateful. How dare you fail me? And Ouyang's Toxic just fathers like, are another trope in <laughs> Asian literature. Yeah, Ouyang's just like, fuck this. <laughs> it's like, why should I be grateful that you made me a slave and made me feel like I am not worthy of respect. Like, fuck that. No, you're you're going to die. So speaking of Isen, he was a pretty interesting character as well. If I would say like Zhu and Ouyang, they're, they're like two sides of the same coin. I would say like Ma and Isen are like the same. They Because they're like the... Not... I guess love interests but i i feel like they're more than that like companion i don't know if i would say they're the same though i think they provide it's like different parallel because <laughs> like with with isen like he comes from a position of power um so the power dynamic between oyang and isen are are fucked up to begin with and um isen is He's described to be like a very loving guy, 
But for a very loving, confident, charming guy, he says some really like shitty things to Oyang, who he considers to be his best friend. Uh, he'll be like, oh, you're so lucky to not have to deal with wives, not knowing that it it hurts. I mean, his- he's just your typical like privileged dude pro, right? He just he doesn't see. And he like completely forgets, like forgets the fact that his family killed Oyang's family. He's like, oh, we're good, though, right? Because we're besties. I don't know if he so- forgets. He just doesn't think about it. He doesn't think it's a big deal. Like he he is someone like because during this time, the um the Mongolians were the privileged class, right? They were the conquerors. And you know, Han Chinese during that time were essentially second-class citizens. So it's like they don't, they, they can't see the oppression because they are the oppressors. But Ouyang's, you know, Ouyang still loves him. There is like a romance, romantic interest there, but it's also laced in with a lot of like poison because this is a relationship that is completely not balanced in terms of power and agency. And uh, there's a moment when uh, Isen is drunk and, uh, you know, he kind of makes a move on Oyang and he says, oh, you really are as beautiful as a woman. And for Oyang, it's like, it's really, it's really a slap in the face. It's a moment of humiliation because here's someone that he actually loves, but the person he loves can't accept him as uh like accept his masculinity and his entire gender identity and then you have ma who is like the complete opposite she's in the same position as isen in terms of her relation to zhu but she accepts zhu's identity and i don't know it, it just shows like the contrast of like how how badly things could have turned out if Ma was a worse person. I mean, Ma is also a woman, you know, in Imperial China, which means she is the second classist of the second class, right? And I think her her character was interesting because she is just as clever as Zhu, just as smart, just as savvy. But because she is a woman, because she identifies as a woman, because and because she lives as a woman, she is constantly underestimated, constantly belittled, and constantly... Just as Yisang is, you know, privileged and unable to see, like she is um, oppressed and unable to see her worth out of that, right? To her, her fate is to be a woman as a woman is supposed to be, like a good wife, a good daughter, and not being able to want for anything for herself. Yeah, and like when she discovers Jews... um uh, like when she finds out that Zhu is actually a woman, like she also starts to explore her sexuality. And I thought that was like a really beautiful relationship between the two. Like Ma is teaching Zhu that you need to have empathy. You can't just be cutthroat all the time because otherwise just you're just going to end up like, what What was his name? Uh, Chen Yuliang or the other guy in in her faction shoot i totally forgot his name Chen because, Yuliang, yeah 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 you you say that she's teaching zu empathy but i feel like zu just has her around to make herself feel better about the shitty things that she I does i guess yeah there there is some yeah i mean i could i can see that she keeps zu a little more, bit more grounded like her presence makes zu feel bad about the shitty things that she does which i guess is a net positive at the end of the day right at the, at the very least zu considers the consequences right because otherwise it would have just been like oh this is like i don't care i'm just going to do whatever the hell i want to get what i want whereas like ma's like well 
really think about this. Like, think about like how karma is going to get back at you for for destroying people's lives, innocent lives. And um, from what I've from what I know, this is the beginning of a duology. So the second book is going to go into uh, Zhu being the emperor. And uh, I heard that there's going to be like more details on the ghost seeing and how that plays yeah. in with consequences. I mean, let's talk a little bit about the light fantasy elements because um, she who became the sun, I think, is classified as a a fantasy. And like we mentioned, there are fantastical elements. Um, but I really enjoyed the fact that all of the fantasy parts are kind of mundane. They're kind of just allegorical manifestations of Chinese concepts like um, hungry ghosts and uh, fate uh, between people being a prominent part of their lives. And the most fantastical thing in the story the is actually the flame? heaven, yeah. which you know, traditionally is the um, justification um, tyrants use to justify their right to rule because, well, obviously I deserve to be emperor because I won the war and so I am blessed by heaven. But in the case of she who became the sun, um, the mandate of heaven is an actual physical flame that manifests to people who have received the right to rule China. Yeah, the mandate of heaven flame was really interesting because when we look at history and people claim to be like the the next divine emperor like it's usually like okay like look at my bloodline like the these are my ancestors where like whereas like with the mandate of heaven it's just like look i have like this spirit flame in my hand the heavens have um deemed me worthy of rule and there's like three people with the mandate of heaven so you're just like oh like so what does that mean like three people are like are worthy candidates to be emperor and you just got to pick your fave, I guess. Whoever is willing to take it, right? Like in the world, the blue flame of the Yuan dynasty is fading, right? So, I mean, the Mongols are losing their mandate. So someone's got to step up. Um, (laughs) What did you think about the, I say twist ending, but it's only a twist ending if you um, didn't know the historical context beforehand. But what did you think about the, um, what did you think about the fact that do like literally Lenny's the child emperor. I mean, I knew that it was going to happen the moment the Prince of Radiance was um, introduced as a child. Because what is the easiest way to show how cutthroat somebody is in terms of uh, of getting power? You show them murdering an innocent life, and who's more innocent than like a cute kid <laughs> with like nice peachy cheeks? Was and- he cute though? I thought he was pretty creepy. <laughs> He was cute. I mean, cute and creepy. I mean, this this kid supposedly got reincarnated and re- remembers his past lives and whatnot. I was um, forced to watch tons of executions. I mean, listen, it's during a time of war. What kid hasn't seen <laughs> some type of execution or death? Um, but even though I didn't really, uh, even though I wasn't aware of the red turban rebellion which was an actual rebellion during uh the rise of the ming dynasty like i i was just like he's gonna die that's not (laughs) that's not a surprise to me at all and it turns out with the red turban rebellion their uh mascot or like whatever the guy that they were trying to make 
emperor he also got mysteriously disappeared uh lenny'd (laughs) it was so hilarious that zoo was like hey look at the pretty moon before stabbing him that was like a show of of mercy you know it's just like the kid knows that he's gonna die and he's just like i honestly don't want to kill you but i kind of have to in order to achieve my full potential so let's Let's make it easier on both of us and just not <laughs> do our best to just not make eye contact. How did you find the um, pragmatism of Zhu Tongba during the story? As a very like rational person myself, I was just like, yeah, that makes sense. Like if you're going to like this is this is Game of Thrones. Like if you want the throne, you're going to have to kill people. <laughs> I like the fact that Zhu used everyone else's superstitions and preconceived notions against them because, oh, you believe all this bullshit. I'm going to use my rationalism to use that against you because I'm not bound by your concepts of honor or masculinity or fairness. Nothing is fair in war. (laughs) And also, like, speaking of, um, like, honor and stuff uh oyang when when they have like that fight in the cliffside and oyang chops off uh Zhu's hand and and says like oh this is a fate worse than death because like now you're like less of a man because you can't wield a sword like your men are not going to follow you because you're disabled and Zhu is just like jokes on you sure yeah I, like as long as i'm alive I, no one can stop me and it also comes from a place of um, her being like, well, I was considered a second-class citizen who had zero potential, but I managed to make it this far with my wits. So really having, like, only one hand, it's just a minor inconvenience at this point. It's just a flesh wound. <laughs> and then Oyang's just like, what are you doing? Like, how like why are you back to commanding your army like don't you don't you feel like disgrace like being a commander that is disabled and she's just like it's fine like so there's this one character that we have not mentioned but he is my favorite character is in this not? book it's no no it's uh lord wang uh <laughs> Wang Baoshang, <laughs> the, yeah. the half-brother of Isen. And I just love him because, like, I just the idea that he is, a, he is like, I, I think he's half-Mongol, right? Like, half-Mongol and, like, half-Han uh, Chinese. He definitely but, has Chinese blood in him because that's why his yeah, dad hates yeah. him. Yeah, his dad hates him because he's like, I don't, like, I don't want to, like, fight. I don't, like, what is the point? Like, let me, like, you want men? Let me look at my accounting sheets. Yeah, this guy is the smartest guy in every scene that he's in. And he just, like, just full of sass and just, like... I love the sass. The sass is great. Like, like, them being like, aren't you ashamed of just, you know, being smart and just reading the classics (laughs) and admiring previous dynasties that we've conquered like why are you like why are you wasting your time where he's he's like like, well if i wasn't so smart you wouldn't have armies to fight for you you wouldn't have supplies and i totally agree with that sentiment so (laughs) i'm i'm just like yes i i am all for this character like he is my face it's unfortunate uh with how his arc ended you know well actually it wasn't really unfortunate because he did technically get the last word oh he definitely went out with middle fingers to everybody yeah he did so yeah 
Uh, I did enjoy the glimpse into Yuan Dynasty um, court as well. Like, it's interesting reading, like, their biases, like, them being like, oh, Chinese women with their tiny feet, like, so impractical. Like, why are they doing that? Or or just like, oh, they're scholars. Like, the reason why they didn't survive, it's because they, like, they weren't man enough to learn how to fight. And it's it's just interesting reading their thoughts on that. And, you know, this wasn't depicted, but I think... Um, I want to say that at the end of the Yuan Dynasty, the Yuan Mongols were also looked down upon by like the Mongols from Mongolia because like you've been living in luxury in China all these years. You're not real Mongols neither. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, Interesting fact that, that that I found out while you know wiki diving after reading this book is, I guess Korea was never actually conquered by the Yuan Dynasty. No, we kind of had like a weird deal with them where we're like, okay, yeah, I guess we'll send our rulers and, you know, pretty girls to be your concubines so that you have like some influence in our court. But technically we didn't lose. Yeah, well, we we got conquered by, by Japan. Um, but yeah, like I knew about, about like Mongolia and Korea like their weird relationship because there's this drama called Empress Key and she was the um and, and like her son was the king of Korea who was raised in Mongolia so uh, I remember seeing like clips of that drama and being like oh right Mongols invaded us <laughs> like is there a country that they didn't invade <laughs> um that was a thought that I had when I was watching that drama. But yeah, like lots of wiki diving after reading this book, yeah. which is very funny because it's not like meant to be historically accurate. Like you do not read this book for historical accuracy. But like I want to say more than half the characters that Shelley writes are based on real life characters, right? There was a real life Zhu Tongba who was a warrior monk who became the first emperor of, of the Ming Dynasty. And he really did well. They said that the dynastic heir of the Red Turban Rebellion mysteriously died under Zhu Tomba's care, which I think, you know, he probably murdered that kid, right? Oh, yeah, like 100% murdered <laughs> that kid. But Wayang is a fictional character influenced by other historical figures, if I'm, if I'm correct. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about Zhu Tomba's life as a commander in the Red Turban um, Rebellion seeking her fate of greatness by pursuing glory. But we haven't talked much about the earlier arc in the story where Du Tsumba is a novice monk um, trying to find a comfortable life within the walls of the monastery while trying to maintain her cover as a boy while dealing with her um, power-tripping uh, senior monk. I feel like the monastery arc was a really clever way of saying, you know what? People abuse power no matter where they are. You know, you're in this place yeah. where where monks are supposed to be following Buddhism and being all altruistic, but there's just as much posturing and power tripping and corruption going on here as well. I mean, like, okay, this, this is just like a small note, but when I heard that Ju was going to go into a monastery, I was like, oh, okay, we're going to get some like battle montage, like training montages, <laughs> because I thought it was going to be like one of those it's fighting. It's not a Shaolin monastery. Monk- <laughs> Well, because, like, it's a war, 
book, right? It's a military fantasy book. So I was like, oh man, like she needs to get ready to be a badass general. Like this is this is the beginning, but it turns out that her first battle, she she beats ten thousand people with just a gong and manipulations. So. <laughs> like I said, the trickster strategic genius general is pretty much a a trope and i mean i'm going to paraphrase because i don't know the actual quotes but a lot of sun tzu's art of war is about how you win wars by not fighting but by winning the battle before the fighting even starts yeah yeah and like the funny thing is like almost everyone on Zhu's side they are all in it for themselves like even the (laughs) soldiers are just like i like I'm here to stay alive. Like as soon as it looks like we're outnumbered, I'm I'm bailing. Just like no way. Um and yeah, it's just like it's a very interesting way to uh to win a war, I guess. Cause like I expected more battles, but it was a lot of it was a lot of planning. It was a lot of politics lot of and underhanded dealings, <laughs> a lot of subterfuge. What was your favorite battle? Uh, my favorite battle, it was probably the walled city mm. because it was just like, because they, she goes in trying to convince the widow. <laughs> yeah. She, she can try to, tries to convince the widow. Hey, can you kill like the new governor? But the wife is, the widow is like, no, you need to kill him because <laughs> like, I need proof that you are going to actually go the distance for me yeah. in order to like secure my future. So I'm like, oh, like that's a that's a fun twist. And like <laughs> you said, it's a heist. So I thought it was pretty fun to read. Yeah. What about you? Uh I kind of like the um I guess it was the most traditional of the battles, which is the the decoy battle. Oh when when Zhu gets like yeah, which ends in the duel. Cut off. Yeah. Um because they were both playing they're both trying to like 40 chess each other. Like so it was like, well I know what you're thinking. And I'm going to use that against you. And then Oyun's like, well, I know what you think that I'm thinking, but joke's on you. I'm not even trying to win this battle. I'm just here to mess you up. I mean, it's it's like it's like interesting because like Oyoung is like purposely sabotaging yeah. uh, efforts to to like win battles. And everyone's like, why are you so incompetent at, you know, taking back this this capital or or defeating this army that is like very small and like he's just like in his mind, he's like because that's what I've been planning, you <laughs> fools. Like, do you really think that they would win if I actually took them seriously? So yeah, it's it's a lot of subterfuge, and it's really fun to read. Um, yeah, I'm excited to read the second part because I just want to see um, Zhu's character arc and how. Her relationship with Ma is going to evolve now that a lot of trust has been broken. Yeah, I'm also excited to see more of the clash between Zhu's pragmatism with Ma's idealism and also with um, Ouyang's fatalism. (laughs) By the end of the book, Ouyang's still on his path towards his revenge and he still feels that he has no control over his fate and i wonder if he'll get out of that um somewhere in book two or if he stays with that till the end um i did enjoy the irony that both um zu and ouyang are each other's origin story in this book um zu started on her path to glory because ouyang came and burned down her safe haven and forced her out into the world uh whereas 
um, Zhu started Ouyan out on his uh, quest for revenge by defeating his army and sending him home early, um, thereby creating the optimal conditions for his plan for revenge. So yeah, I guess to wrap up our discussion of She Who Became the Sun, um, I really enjoyed reading this book. Um, I did not come in expecting a historical Chinese military epic. For some reason, I thought it'd be more of like a wuxia tale, but I really enjoy this type of storytelling. Um, you know, I watched a lot of Three Kingdoms growing up, and so I was glad to see a style of story that I was familiar with, um, even though I haven't seen it much told um, through a Western lens. Like I mentioned, I wasn't super familiar with the Yuan Dynasty or the Ming Dynasty. And so the um, supplementary wiki hole that I fell into was also a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, I'm really excited to see where the story goes. Um, there's still a few decades left of um, Zhu's reign as the uh, first emperor of the Ming Dynasty. And the Yuan Dynasty has yet to be defeated yet, neither. Um, like right now, as the story stands, there's at least two or three other factions right now um, aiming to take down the remaining Yuan rulers. And Chinese history loves to build and break coalitions. Um, so I wonder if we'll get more of the military campaign to take control of China or if we'll just skip straight to the victory and focus on the reign of the Hong Emperor. I'm not familiar with my Ming Dynasty history either, uh, but I do know that the like the son of the Zhu Emperor undid a lot of the the laws that that the first emperor made. So they consider it to be like the second founding of the Ming Dynasty. So yeah, interested to see if any children come in the second book and we get some domestic drama in there, <laughs> but. We'll see. Yeah. Um, but as for my final thoughts, I really enjoyed the characters. I really liked the fact that we had dual protagonists who were kind of foils for each other, who served each other as like their own origin stories. Um, I love how there was a spectrum of queer identities in this book. Usually we only get one or two in fantasy books. And it's just nice that even in a setting that is very much known to be patriarchal and hyper-masculine, you have these characters that are in between. And um, they're, and it's like so subtle too. It's not, I don't think it's kind of um, like, I feel like with the characters, it just felt so natural how they like slipped into uh, their gender expressions. So um, I think Shelley did a really good job uh, in that aspect. Yeah, and the way that they interacted with the world is really believable too. You can really believe that this is the way that someone who is trying to pass as a man or someone who is trying to hang on to his masculinity would act in you know, these situations. Um, I think the character work is really, really well done and an effective way to introduce queer storylines in a genre where it's usually, if any, you know, combined to the subtext. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we forget a lot of the times that queer people existed in ancient times. And I like to believe that there were definitely queer people like you and <laughs> yeah. uh, in, in like the Ming dynasty, the Song dynasty, like there had to be a queer community. And yeah, I mean, eunuchs are a big part of court life in Imperial China. They're the attendants of the empresses and concubines. And, you know, historically they're characterized as like, um, scheming politicos, um, which may or may not be tied to 
the lack of their perceived masculinity. Um, but I'm sure these dudes got together all the time to talk about their identity and their place in the world now that people don't see them as men. Yeah, I am all for books that are like, fuck the patriarchy. <laughs> this this ain't right. Do what you want. And uh, I like the fact that we have a character who, you know, is cutthroat and is it going to play by the rules? I don't know. Like, it just makes <laughs> things much more fun to read overall. Yeah, so I guess that'll do it for our discussion of She Who Became the Sun by Shelley Parker Chan. Um, if you have any other thoughts on things that we talked about or things that we missed um, that you'd like to bring up, um, please let us know on our Goodreads forums. Um, we'd always love to hear what our book club members have to say about our discussions and our book club picks. Uh, and I guess on that note, um, Rira, what are we reading for the month of February 2022? We are reading Good Talk by Mira Jacob, and it is a graphic memoir. So we are going back into uh, the graphic novel slash graphic memoir territory. It's been a while. Uh, I thought that this would be a good pick because it's February and pictures are a lot faster to <laughs> absorb than words. It's a shorter month for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and we also read like a very long book. So I thought that it would be a good change of pace. Awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to checking that out. Um, we'll be discussing that book at the end of the month. So um, please read along with us. But on that note, we've come to the end of this episode of Books and Boba. Thank you so much for joining us as we discussed She Who Became the Sun by Shelley Parker Chan. Um, Rira, as always, thank you for hanging out with me and talking about books. All right, everyone. See you next time. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Ryan, what's black and white and red all over? I don't know, Robin. Two nuns having a chainsaw fight? Dude, inappropriate. Come on, man. This is supposed to be a podcast promo for our secret underground podcast, Quarantine Comics. Oh, yes. Quarantine Comics, the weekly comic book club where I, ace reporter Ryan Joe, and I, mild-mannered Robin Sutton, team up to discuss some of comics' greatest works. Or just some really cool comics that we've been wanting to read. From Alan Moore to Uzumaki. From Arrakis to Zendaya. From Adrian Tomine to Jean Lun Yang. You might not have heard of half the stuff that we're reading or the other half is just pop culture superhero stuff they could just read the books with us right yes they could do that but you could also just send us money no ryan that's not how passion podcast projects work why in the hell are we even doing this uh i'm sure we'll be back by next week's episode <clears throat> so tune in each week to quarantine comics that's qtdcomics.com set phasers to fun <laughs>